This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Port Over, and I'm so excited to welcome Saray Walker to the show. You may know her from her first novel, 2015's Dietland. It was everywhere. It was exciting. It was a feminist novel inspired by Fight Club, which we're going to come back to at some point in this conversation. But The Cherry Robbers is her new novel. And I have to I've been dying to ask this question, though. Is this the prequel to Dietland? <laughs> Well, it's funny. I, I never thought about it like that. You know, I, they're very different novels on the surface, but I feel like in their bones, their sisters, you know, they're very subversive stories about women and gender, but I never thought about it that way. So <laughs> that's a really interesting idea. I couldn't stop thinking about it as I was reading The Cherry Robbers. Now, granted, we start in Connecticut in the 1950s, and we've got this family of six daughters and mom and dad, and we are going to get to all of these characters. But the whole time I was reading this, I'm like, oh, I see exactly exactly how we get to the world of diet land, given everything these young women go through and everything they put up with. So would you set up the cherry robbers, please, for listeners? Sure. So it's bookended by a present day narrative from 2017. And we meet this 80 year old, very reclusive artist who lives in the northern deserts of New Mexico in a town, a little village called Abiquiu, which fans of George O'Keefe might recognize, uh, even though she's not George O'Keefe, but she's a very famous painter. She is very reclusive, very eccentric. And at the beginning of the novel, she receives a letter from a journalist Basically, he was threatening to expose her real identity. And so this is something that has never happened to her throughout. You know, she's been living under a different name from her early 20s. And so this is quite a shock to her that this would happen at this point in her life. And so she decides that she wants to tell the story of what happened to her five sisters back in 1950s Connecticut. So she sits down to write that story. And so most of the novel takes place in the 50s, starting in 50, going up to about 1957. And then we have the book of the novel there, and then it goes back to the present at the very end. So, you know, in the 1950s, we meet the Chapel family. They are a firearms dynasty. They have six daughters. We're all named after flowers. Aster, Rosalind, Calla, Daphne, Iris, Hazel. Hazel goes by Zelly. They live in this big Victorian mansion that looks like a wedding cake. So it's the wedding cake style of architecture. And they're in Connecticut. So it's very much a New England novel in the 50s part. They live in this Victorian mansion in this quaint little village in Connecticut. They're very wealthy, but they're very eccentric and sort of cut off from, you know, the rest of the of the town. The mother is got problems. <laughs> She's very haunted and just this odd person who doesn't fit into society. You know, the daughters kind of are embarrassed by her. Most of them are embarrassed by her. And she's basically locked in their house in an almost kind of Emily Dickinson kind of way. And their father runs the firearms company and he's, you know, not really very interested in his family or what they're doing. And so the main character of the novel is Iris and she's the second to youngest. I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying that she will be the only one that survives. It's one of those novels that is like a, you know, at the beginning, a kind of a broad strokes, you know, something going to happen to all of these sisters. The question is, what is it? What happens? How and why does it happen? So it's like all the arrows kind of moving forward. And you don't, you don't know how it all unfolds, but that's what kind of novel it is. And I really love that kind of structure. So I think that's kind of a overview of what's in it without giving too much away. It has a little bit of a fairy tale feeling to it though. I mean, 
mean, the girls aspire to be married. They aspire to settle down. They aspire to leave their parents' houses, but not necessarily with careers ahead of them. And it's partially a product of the time, certainly. I mean, 1950s America, you know, if you were a woman, you got to be basically a teacher or a nurse or a stay-at-home parent. I mean, those are kind of your options. And they're also, they're very upper class. And we start with a wedding. Once we get back into the 1950s part, the first hundred pages or so are building up to this this wedding, which Aster, the sister who's getting married, is very, very excited about. But the mother of the family, you know, has this premonition that something terrible is going to happen to Aster. And so she clouds this time and it becomes this real struggle between Aster and the other sisters who are very excited and all wrapped up in this wedding. And then the mother, her premonition and Iris, who was the only one who believes her mother's premonition um, and tries to stop the wedding. And so we're heading into this kind of novel about, you know, the 1950s housewife. And I want wanted to take that kind of premise and like blow it up. <laughs> and so that's kind of the terrain we start in. And it's really a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to to write those parts and then get ready to try to turn it on its head. So we've got this cast of the six girls. We know it's the 1950s in America. And I'm, I'm sort of staying away from the bookends only because so much happens there that I do not want to spoil. <laughs> So this is why we're focusing on everything that happens between the first few pages and the last few pages. But there's a wedding. But how did we get here? How did this book start for you? I was still writing Dietland when I first conceived of what would be kind of a very broad premise for the for the novel. Dietland was so difficult to write. It was very plugged into the present moment um, and all these brutalities and all of these horrible things that you know were happening to women and that sort of thing. And it also had a an autobiographical component, like kind of in an emotional sense. So every day I was writing it, it was like picking at a scab. It was very difficult for me personally. And so I just started to fantasize about what I was going to write next. And I wanted it to be very different. I wanted to not have a kind of personal connection. I just wanted it to be like just a completely different story. And I started to think I wanted it to be a historical novel. And I just, you know, was kind of fantasizing about it here and there, just gave me something to look forward to. And I, for some reason, had the idea that the novel would be about a family with a lot of daughters. I think in Dietland, Plum was very alone all the time, even though she ended up meeting these women, but she was still very, you know, alone. Even these other women kind of orbited her. But I wanted someone who was kind of immersed in this bigger family and was around people. And I have one sister, so I don't know what it's like to have five sisters, but I wanted to have a lot of daughters. And I thought, well, because it's me, of course, I think, well, something's going to happen. And I think a lot of these sisters, most of them, all of them are all going to die in some mysterious way. But I didn't know what it was. And then it was not long after that, it just kind of popped into my head of what was going to happen to them. Because, you know, I thought, what could kill these all these women? It's not at one time. It's not like an accident or a fire or something. So what could kill them? And, you know, over a period of years and then... I had the kind of core idea of what that was going to be. And then I was like, that's it. (laughs) So I just have that kind of real sketch. And then it developed over a long period of time in my head before I could ever even have a chance to start writing it. Probably like that was about 10 years ago that I had the first time the idea. So it was about three and a half years before I could even try and do any writing on it. There's a lot of sort of fairy tale feel to the narrative in this book, the way it's told and sort of, you know, marriage is what these women aspire to because it's the era, it's the time they want happiness, they want to be gone. And and really the only way for them to leave home is to be married. I mean, there is a sort of dreamy quality to the story early on. How did you know when you had the right tone? Because you don't want this to be frothy. I mean, you've essentially written a really big gothic novel, 
But there's a lot of humor in this book as well. And there's a little bit of eyebrow raising at some of the things <laughs> that your characters do. And my British editor, when she acquired it, um, said she thought it had campy elements to it as well. So yeah, I'm kind of playing with a lot of things like that in it. So the world of the novel was very important to me. I knew I wanted it to be very lush and very sensual. And so I really needed to build that world because I'd never written anything like that before. You know, I did all sorts of things. I mean, I, I'm a very visual person, so I created these boards, like both the bulletin board things and these kind of private boards I had on Pinterest with like images of the pre-Raphaelites and paintings of women in meadows and, you know, all that kind of stuff was very influential. Um, I was reading poetry. Um, it has a very Victorian vibe, the Cherry Roberts. <laughs> I love the Victorian era, but it takes place in the 50s. So at the same time, I was, you know, on eBay ordering, you know, Mademoiselle from 1950 and bridal magazines. And I had this huge stack of them in my closet. And so I was just immersing myself in this kind of imagery. I didn't want people to just see the world. I wanted them to like feel it and taste it and smell it. There's a lot to do in the book to do with flowers. And I just wanted all of that to kind of come to life. So yeah, it was something that I built very carefully of what that world would be like. And I knew that I wanted, you know, the details of the wedding, you know, the dresses and the gowns and everything, that that was a very important part of you know, just building up to the story and what was happening with this family and taking these things that are happy, you know, the wedding dress, the flowers and, and infusing them with like dread, this kind of dread that kind of starts to seep in and then tragedy later. So always playing with these kind of things that are associated with femininity, like very high femininity. I love playing with that. Like in Diet Land, I wrote about the beauty products and the makeup closet. And I love I love that. So I was sort of in my element when I was able to do that. And femininity ultimately doesn't save any of these girls. Everything they been taught doesn't really quite get them where they think it should. Right. It's their undoing, their literal undoing. Again, just kind of taking these scripts and sort of flipping them, you know, and even the idea of, for example, romance, you know, when I was writing it, I was thinking of it as an anti-romance novel <laughs> in the sense that no matter what type of book you're reading or film or TV show, people love to feel like maybe the character is going to find love or something if they don't have it, even if that's not the main point. But, you know, that's always kind of part of stories that we read. And so I wanted to subvert that. I didn't want, I wanted people instead of saying, oh, I hope these two get together. I hope, you know, she gets together with this person or whatever. Instead, it's like, oh, no, 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 stay away from him. Don't go on that date. Don't accept his proposal. Like this kind of horror at romance. Again, you know, just flipping these things on their head, which I find a lot of fun. So with these women in the 50s, and, you know, there's a lot that goes along with how tactile you've made this environment. And part of that is seeing these women deny their own appetites to suppress their own hunger. And I'm not talking about literal things like food and sex per se, although there's this really great moment where Iris is in college and she's like, no, I want the full pastrami sandwich and I want the bowl of soup. Not, and the waiter's like, what do you mean? And she's just like, no, I need to eat. Like, what? I mean, have we made any progress? I mean, I know I was in the 1950s and then I was in the 1960s, but at the same time, I sort of felt like, oh, it's Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, you know, in the world of the novel, the, the women are very constrained, you know, in a lot of ways, and, and their house is almost like a prison. But just in the terms of, yeah, the 1950s culture, you're so constrained in what you could do, what you can say, what you can wear, and all of that kind of thing. One of the things that Iris is trying to break free from, and I think that 
the bookends of the novel that take place in New Mexico sort of represent that, this sort of, she's not confined anymore, and she's out in this vast landscape under this huge sky. But as for how that connects to what we're experiencing today, I mean, you know, in Dietland, I was so immersed in that. And when you consider when I actually wrote Dietland, I'm about a decade on from that, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. And I'm, I just read recently, something in New York Magazine about the beauty culture of like TikTok. And it was just like, oh my God, <laughs> I was like, okay, the specifics of like shift in all sorts of ways since Dietland, but just reading that article about this beauty culture and, and wanting to look hot. And it just seems like nothing's changed. And it's kind of worse in certain ways because there's now it's all, you know, social media. And I don't want to sound like some old old person, like social media is to blame. But you know what I mean? It's just like it escalates it, you know, that it's not just your peer group who's interacting with you and seeing you and what you look like. And now it can be like anyone on earth can see you if they have, you know, an Instagram account or TikTok account. But just kind of broadens this idea of being looked at and under surveillance all the time in a totally different way in a more extreme way. So yeah, I feel like things are changing all the time, but not getting better. I mean, in some ways things are getting better in terms of fat positivity and some some aspects of body positivity. So I'm not saying it's all doom and gloom, but there's some scary stuff happening out there. And it's, it's very demoralizing for someone like me who spent so long looking at these issues. The girl's mother sits in pretty significant contrast to her daughter. She is, as you mentioned early on, very much an Emily Dickinson type recluse. And she didn't want to get married, but she had to because her brother was like, well, I'm not going to take care of you, so get out. And she couldn't really find a job. What she really wanted to do was study science. And her brother was like, yeah, I'm not paying for that. So you really just need to get married. And by the way, here's this dude I work with and you can marry him. <laughs> In a way, it's really tragic, but Iris is the daughter that connects with her mom on a pretty significant level. And Iris doesn't really know what's going on with mom, but she trusts her mother in a way that her sisters do not. How did that relationship develop for you? I mean, obviously you need one sibling, at least, who's going to be a little bit of a contrast to the pack of very girly girls. Oh, wow. These sisters are very, very girly, 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 girly girls. But here's Iris. And she wants to help her mom, but she's also loyal to her sisters. Yeah, I think that she and her mom are very different people and very, very different. But I think that... So the mother, Belinda, and Iris are both survivors, I think. They are not afraid, I think, to stand outside of the, the crowd of what everyone else is doing. But there is another character than all, Daphne, one of the other sisters who is like that, but that doesn't save her. But Iris, you know, so towards the end of the novel, one of the things that she says is that I listened to my mother when, and when she said we were in danger and, and I'm the only one that listened to her. And so I think that part of it was she was just willing to listen to what she had to say to receive this maternal knowledge that her mother was trying to pass on to her daughters, but she didn't know how. And so she was this very, what would be viewed as this quote unquote, hysterical presence and, you know, seeing ghosts and, and crying and all of this kind of stuff screaming in the night. And she didn't know how to communicate, but Iris tried to tune into her and the others just kind of discarded her. So I think that's what sets Iris apart from her sisters in that sense. Do you think Belinda's husband loved her or was he just trying to minimize the chaos that came with the way she was presenting in the family? 
as I wrote it, I, I didn't think that he had loved her. Um, that was just, you know, he needed to get married and like, hey, here's this, you know, woman that's a sister of a friend of mine. And so let's just get this over with kind of thing, <laughs> which I think, you know, in some ways, a lot of men and women do in, in times when they feel like they just need to get married and, and live up to this certain role. So I don't think of it that way. No, but I mean, I, you know, I want the reader to kind of interpret how they want. <laughs> I went back and forth a little bit, to be honest. There were a couple of moments where I thought, oh, that's a little more tender than I expected him to be under the circumstance. And then, of course, there's the, you know, must present the solid man about town kind of impression. And then he starts to pull back from the community because he's like, this is now this is too much. And I'm not going to spoil the moment that (laughs) makes him say, now this is too much. We are not doing this anymore. But there does sort of come a point. And the men... In contrast with the six chapel sisters, the fiancés and the boyfriends and the husbands, they see no reason to change. Everything is perfectly fine for them. They're just going to do the things they need to do because why worry? Everything goes according to plan. Well, I think Mr. Chapel, you know, he's a very wealthy man. And I feel like he feels like his money and status means that he doesn't have to be bothered with his family, you know, that he should have a wife, should just take care of everything. He should come home for dinner and sit at the head of the table and have this nice family surrounding him. He doesn't ever really do much to kind of nurture that family, provides for them materially, but that's all, you know, whether he has any love for his children, I, you know, he, I'm sure he does, but, and also just kind of a protectiveness that comes in as we see from time to time, but then also this kind of exasperation when he can't control the outcome and how they behave, the daughters. So that's what I would say about that. The husbands and the boyfriends and the suitors and whatnot, the men in this book, they're so sure of themselves. And it's slightly different from the way the Chapel sisters are sure of what they want and what they believe they need to move on to the next piece of their life. But the men are just very sure. There's one character who is a student at Yale, but he's from Texas. (laughs) Roderick. And less so of Papa Chapel, but, you know, some of the younger men, there's a little bit of comic relief to them. And I don't think they know how funny they come off to the reader. (laughs) They're quite a character, especially Roderick, this cowboy hat and his Cadillac and everything. Mm -hmm. But I think the men, you know, it's interesting the role that they play. They don't get a lot of airtime, but... So the novel is very interested in these ideas of like domination, which, you know, ties in with all sorts of things like the, the guns that are very important. And the mother, Belinda, thinking that the family is haunted by the spirits of people who have been killed by these weapons. And, you know, these girls are, of course, very upper class. And I wanted the men that they were involved with to be these sort of larger than life men who are very successful and had were kind of, you know, very egotistical and follow themselves just because they were born into these very privileged families. And that's what they expected of life, you know. And so they were marrying these kind of captains of industry. And, and that sort of thing. But the, the, it's funny the, the, when the men come to visit, for example, it's like Irish compares Roderick at one point to like a monkey at the zoo. It's like they just kind of observe them because they don't really fit into like this very female world of the chapel house. And so in a way, they kind of eye them as this odd curiosity. So they do provide some comic relief and just some contrast to this very kind of stifling femininity that's in the house. Ultimately, though, the book always comes back to the women, whether it's in a specific moment in the sister's relationship, a specific moment between the sisters and the mother, or Daphne has a girlfriend. It's very sweet. (laughs) But there's also a hint that it's going to be doomed because of the era. I was rooting for Daphne. I was hoping she wasn't. I was like, well, isn't she exempt? But apparently not. (laughs) She is not exempt. Because there is this sort of fairy tale atmosphere of, you know, the wedding and the marriage and the sex. And then... A terrible thing happens. I was just thinking, well, Daphne can escape, but no. Honestly, I'm not spoiling anything. 
we, we're not going to tell you how Daphne <laughs> does not escape, but I was really rooting for her. <laughs> I know, and Zelly as well. My sister is actually not speaking to me or because of Zelly. I've heard that from a few people. Like, how could you do that? Yeah, Zelly is the one that really gets to people. So I feel, you know, kind of like a monster, but... <laughs> I don't think you should feel like a monster, but I think we can talk about Zelly without giving away the important piece. But... Ultimately, Zelly makes a decision to walk head on into a situation instead of trying to deny that it might happen or try to escape it. She's just like, you know what? I want love. And she makes a choice that I thought was kind of surprising, but it was surprising to me. It was not surprising for her as a character. Mm hmm. Yeah. Can we talk about Zelly, the youngest chapel daughter? She is not like her other sisters. <laughs> Just for one sec, going back to Daphne, I think that she did want to make different choices, but she was overwhelmed by grief, you know, the crushing grief of the people, of the sisters who are left as you go along. So I think that's kind of what happened with her. But with Zelly, yeah, I mean, she's the youngest, the youngest of the of the six. And so the, the tail end and along with Iris, they're very much a pair and they witness everything that happens to their other sisters. And then, the, then we have the two of them, which are really the heart of the story. And there's a real contrast between them and what each of them want. I think that Zelly, you know, she can't imagine her life. You know, Iris is trying to imagine a different future for them outside of this narrow 1950s kind of pathway that they have. And Zelly can't get there. <laughs> she can't. That's just not possible for she doesn't have an alternative vision for what life could be. Because of that, I felt like her ending was very true to the character. Yeah, that's the tragedy of Zelly, I think. It's just not being able to imagine a different type of life. Was there anything that surprised you while you were writing The Cherry Robbers? Because I feel like these women almost presented themselves as complete character, or at least the reading experience was that they're complete characters of their own. But did anyone surprise you? So when I started, it was hard because, you know, there were so many of them. It's very hard when you're writing a book to have six characters and they're all, you know, they're all girls and they, so you worry that they're not going to, they're all going to kind of blend in. And in a way there is this kind of, they're kind of this mass, but on the other hand, they're very differentiated. And so they really revealed themselves as I was writing. I had to kind of write them into existence. I mean, originally I just had, I knew what all their names were. I knew they were all named after flowers, but I had to write them into what they were and how they interacted with each other. That's how they kind of came alive is how they interacted with each other. You know, I'm glad that they seem to be, you know, to the reader quite vivid. And also, you know, one of the things I was worried about was, is this novel which going to be like really depressing? And people have told me that they think it's very fun. It's really fun because they're like hanging out with the sisters. And so that was such a relief, you know, that it's, it can be tragic, but there's also a part of it that's a lot of fun being with them because they're just such, you know, kind of fun, vibrant characters, I hope. Well, I think the fun too, I think you need a little bit of darkness for the fun to really pop. These women, they're all very distinct, too. I have to say, like, I'm very clear on who all of the six sisters are and mom and dad, certainly. But the sisters, they're very, very, even though I was saying how girly they all are, each of them has their own sort of center. But they are very much a product of their family and their situation and their time. And I think that's a lot of where the girliness comes from. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely 
products of the 50s because they don't learn this at home, right? I mean, their mother's not home teaching them. Well, you've got to get married and have kids. She doesn't really want that. I mean, she's absent from their life, so she's not really teaching them anything, but she's not, you know, shoving this down their throat of like, you've got to, you know, be the happy housewife, but they just absorb it from the culture that they live in. You know, it's just like today when you have parents who teach their daughters, you know, very body positive messages at home, but they're still out in the world and they still absorb all those messages, you know, and so it's, we're all products of our society, you know, as well as our family and our home environment. So they've absorbed all of that just in the culture and they want all of those things. You know, as as Iris says, normality is deadly for us, (laughs) but they want normality. That's what they want. And one of the things I appreciate as a reader of The Cherry Robbers, too, is how claustrophobic the environment is. It is gothic with a capital G and claustrophobic and moody and broody. And even though I know you describe the house as sort of a wedding cake, I have this idea of this very dark Victorian (laughs) interior. And the idea that there's all of this pastel fabric (laughs) roaming around (laughs) on these tiny girls. (laughs) That balance, though, how did you find... Because it would be really easy to tip, I would think, towards the sort of broody and dark or the sort of super hyper feminist, but you bring these two together in a really exciting way for the reader. So what's that like for you as the writer? I didn't want it to be just very overwhelmingly dark book. I mean, it has so much tragedy in it. I had to balance that. I wanted it to make it part of it, you know, light and airy and fun and frothy and, you know, feminine to contrast with what's going to happen. I think there's power in that contrast, but also just for the reader, I felt like it can't all be this very goth, you know, all the time, this very gothic world, you know, the kind of fog on the moors kind of thing that there needs to be some kind of break from that. And I felt like the novel, I describe it as a mashup of like Victoriana and 1950s Americana. And so it was just a lot of fun bringing that to life, um, those Victorian elements and in the 50s. So I think that that just kind of, it gives it a nice contrast to what actually happens in the story, which is very disturbing. And they can kind of play off of each other, those different aspects. Can we talk about some of the literary influences for The Cherry Robbers? I mean, I know when you were talking about Dietland quite a lot, you would say, well, it was based on Fight Club. I saw Fight Club and I was like, oh, there's an idea here. And it makes perfect sense. I mean, the structure of Dietland, everything that you're doing in Dietland, it makes perfect sense. But this obviously is, even though the feminist threads are there, even though there's a lot that is basically the sibling to Dietland, but I'm guessing there's less Fight Club in this book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no Fight Club. It's funny, you know, Fight Club, I think Dietland was a response to Fight Club. I wasn't writing in conversation with any other book. I would say The Cherry Robbers. And there's no one book that was really important to me. I couldn't really find a book that I thought was doing exactly what I was trying to do. But I would say that, you know, one book that was really important to me, and I may not, it may not seem obvious, the connection was Kate Atkinson's Life After Life. I love Kate Atkinson. Like, I just want to be here when I grow up. <laughs> And Life After Life, I had the idea for this novel, but I hadn't started writing it yet. And it was just something that I was felt very inspired by. You know, you have a historical novel, you have a rather large family, and, you know, it's grounded, it's very lush, but it's grounded, you know, in this 
a recognizable reality, but there's this conceit at the center of it. There's something that happens that can't happen in real life. And so I felt like that was kind of a good, uh, I don't want to say model, but it just was a good inspiration for me because it was doing something kind of that I was trying to do. <laughs> so that book was really, really important to me. And just all of her writing, whenever I feel kind of uninspired or I have writer's block, I'll pick up one of her books. And I don't know why, but it just I just I just love her writing. So it really, it just helps me find my own words sometimes when I feel like I maybe have writer's block or something. A couple of, you know, some other influences, I would say, um, you know, Shirley Jackson, um, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, and The Haunting of Hill House, those two. Rebecca, you know, Demorier, Rebecca. You know, a lot of that was that just that kind of playing up the real gothic aspect, you know, the, the house and the lush flowers and all of that. I love that. And also my cousin, Rachel. I mentioned in the author's note, you know, Emily Dickinson and H.D. Hilda Doolittle, those two poets were very important, really important to the novel in all sorts of different ways. So I would say that I don't think I'm leaving anyone out. <laughs> but those were sort of the books that influenced me a lot. And then I was, you know, just kind of would turn to sometimes I need inspiration. You mentioned early in the show that that this character that we meet in New Mexico is not, in fact, Georgia O'Keeffe. But can we talk about your personal connection to Georgia O'Keeffe? There's some art that represents her work to a certain extent. And again, this character is absolutely not Georgia O'Keeffe, but she does loom a bit large over this book. So when did you sort of make that decision to pull her in as an inspiration? When I'm thinking of an idea for a novel, like especially for Cherry Robertson and the novel I'm working on now, sometimes I'll have just little things that I become interested in, but I, I don't really know if they're relate to the novel or what, what it is, but I just kind of start collecting these little things in my mind that have kind of intrigued me. And then sometimes they all kind of come together in, in an interesting way and kind of are part of the novel. So, you know, when I was first thinking about this idea, I kept thinking about George O'Keefe and Northern New Mexico. A little part of that was that when I first conceived of this idea, I had read True Grit. I'd never read that before. And so my original thought was, oh, maybe this could be a Western or something. I love, you know, I love that book. I thought maybe I could do a Western or, you know, it was one of the possibilities, which didn't happen, but it has, you know, I managed to get a little bit of the West <laughs> into the novel. But I became very interested in George O'Keefe as this figure in New Mexico and, you know, her art. And then another person I was interested in was Sarah Winchester and this idea, really the legend of her, of mm -hmm. that she's haunted by the spirits of the Winchester rifles. Wait, wait, wait. So you're talking about you almost wrote a Western and I get it. We've got the gun manufacturing and the American dream and all of these elements but somehow we ended up on coastal Connecticut. <laughs> Wait, how did that happen? How did you make that transition from, oh, I can't make this work as a Western the way I want it to, and I think we'll take this Gothic over to New England? I mean, one of the things about this idea is that it could take place in many different eras. I think the 1950s is as late as I could push it because it needed to be in a society where traditional marriage was sort of the, the norm and that sort of thing. But so it could have been a Victorian. It could have been a Western. Originally, it took place in the 20s. So so I did toy with it being a Western. But I don't know. I just kept coming back to this idea of, you know, one of the people that I was on my radar was Sarah Winchester and, you know, who was from Connecticut. And I just had this idea of this Victorian New England man. You know, you can't beat New England when you're thinking about, you know, mansions and Victorian homes and, you know, that kind of setting. But you associate a lot with Gothic and horror and that kind of thing. So I, I just felt that it, it just kind of gravitated to that to that setting, that it needed that. But then I wanted to contrast it with the New Mexico setting. So kind of being from that environment, again, which I kind of viewed as very constricting, <laughs> 
going to the West, this idea of it being more a kind of this open space where she could finally breathe, you know, and thinking about people like George O'Keefe and the landscapes and, and how attractive that was being drawn to that. So yeah, I ended up at these two locations in the novel. Yeah, I've lived in New Mexico and I've lived in New England. So I've experienced both of them and it was very rich. Both of those locations were very rich and offered me a lot to work with and play with. Do you have a favorite moment from the Connecticut sections of the book? I do, yes. <laughs> My favorite part, which is really kind of sad, but it's this chapter about Kala. So Rosalind has died and Kala takes Iris out to New York for the day with her to go shopping for a dress because she's going to a dance. And then she takes her out to lunch. So they spend the day at Bloomingdale's and then at a restaurant. And that was just my favorite part of the book. It was, again, it was that idea that it was kind of fun and frothy and cute, like clothes and makeup, but it had this real twisted element to it for people if you picked up on what was really happening. And I love playing those two elements off of each other. So I really loved writing that. It was sad, but fun. <laughs> It had a definite edge that I appreciated. And, and I think it's going to be really clear to readers when they come across that part of the book, they will understand exactly what is happening because really who wants the stuffed tomato, but <laughs> I will run away now because I'm dangerously on the edge of a spoiler there. I'm trying to bring in the New Mexico parts without giving anything up because there's so much that you set up in those two pieces of the book. Where did they come in the writing process, though? Did you start with those two pieces? Did you start with that idea or did they come as they sort of needed to and then you place them where they needed to go? You know, so there's some things you just can't figure out to your writing. I thought a lot more of it would take place in New Mexico that ended up happening. So, you know, I also didn't realize that for a big chunk of the novel, my character would be 14 years old. You know, things that you just can't anticipate, but that's how it all shaped up. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in New Mexico. After Dietland was published, I went there and I started kind of just getting a feel for it. I really wanted it to be central to the novel. I think, you know, I think it is. And the whole George O'Keefe and all of that, that kind of vibe, you know, that I'm playing with. You know, I realized once I I started writing it that it really just needed to be with the chapel family that that's where most of it was you know and with her the very young woman and then I worked in the New Mexico part as the present day narrative originally there was no present day narrative so you know I really struggled with the novel I, I, I describe it as a second first novel I just couldn't figure out how to write the story I couldn't figure out how to tell it it was so different from how I normally write you know Dietland the voice of Dietland is more my natural voice and I have a more contemporary sense Sensibility, I think. But I really wanted to write a historical novel, which was a challenge for me because I, again, I just have a very sensible or a con <laughs> very contemporary sensibility. I tried to write the novel in the 1920s and that didn't really work. So I pushed it a bit more into the 50s, which I felt like was an era that I was a bit more familiar with because my parents were born in the 50s and it just seemed more real to me. But it was still really hard for me to write in the mindset of somebody who was a product of, you know, 1937. And then, you know, this was in the 50s. And so I ended up thinking, you know, I think this, what this might need is a, is a more a contemporary voice. So I decided to bookend it with my character at 80 years old. And then she was telling it looking back, but it was a modern perspective. And as soon as I did that, it just clicked. And I was finally free from like these years of figuring out, like, I don't know how to make this work. It won't work. As soon as I did that, it just kind of took off. 
then, you know, those parts that she lives in New Mexico. And I was really excited to write those parts because I love New Mexico so much. And I love that voice of the 80 year old woman. She's very cranky and irritable. And I just kind of, that voice comes to me much more naturally than, than I would say the Irish voice from the 1950s. who was very removed from how I normally write. And she also, your 80 year old knows so much more about the world. I mean, that was one of the things that did really get me as I was reading about the sisters is their world is so tiny. Yeah. It's tiny. They have resources. They could end no, they couldn't do anything they wanted despite the resources because they're girls. Yeah, exactly. They're a very wealthy family. The world could have been theirs. But, you know, not only are they confined to the home, but they're confined to this one wing of the home, the girl's wing, you know, so their world is very small in that way. Yeah. So it was just the idea. I love that idea. Dietland, it's a, it's a um, motif as well as the idea of, of women being forced to be made smaller. In Dietland, it was like literally smaller. But in this world, it was just like everything that you want in life has to be fit to this narrow path of what society approves of. And so just this idea of constriction, I'm always kind of right about that. And I really like that. So what's next for you then? You've done the contemporary, you've done sort of the gothic ghost story, Victorian historical. I mentioned, you know, Kate Atkinson, how I wanted to be here when I grow up. And so I'm writing a thriller, <laughs> like a detective kind of story, but there's no detective in it, <laughs> but it's a detective story. My character kind of stands in for the detective. I've always wanted to try writing a mystery, you know, and so I'm pretty deep into that, actually, because there's been kind of a long break from when I finished The Cherry Roberts to when it's being published. So, yeah, I'm, I'm quite deep into it. And I'm very happy about that. Um, so that before The Cherry Roberts comes out, I'm already in another world in my head, which I think is important because, you know, when a book comes out, it can be very distracting in all sorts of ways. And so, yeah, I'm very deep into that. And it's really it has a more contemporary voice, uh, but I'm really having a lot of fun with it. So that's I'm awesome. Really forward to that. Yeah. That's awesome. I cannot wait to read that. Before I let you go, because I know you have many, many things that need to be attended to, but can we talk about Emily Dickinson for just a second before you go? Belinda embodies so much of her, but like Georgia O'Keeffe, Dickinson really is, she's an influence. She's not, Belinda is not Emily Dickinson. Belinda is not Sarah Winchester. There are elements to their stories who are part of Belinda, but she is very much her own person. But Emily Dickinson, I'll take any chance I can to talk about <laughs> Emily Dickinson. So I'm able to quote her in the novel, a couple of fragments of her poems, which I was very excited about. Before you kind of start writing a novel, or at least for me, you know, you do a lot of reading about all sorts of different things, you know, and I was reading about the Mexico art scene, you know, George O'Keefe, uh, Mabel Dodge Lujan, you know, all of these figures from there. I was reading about Sarah Winchester and her life in Connecticut. And Emily Dickinson was one of the people that I gravitated to because originally, you know, I thought, could I set this in the Victorian era? I wasn't sure, but I knew it would have a Victorian influence. And I just saw her as such a Victorian figure, you know, in her house and wearing these white dresses and writing poetry, which of course is very important, the Cherry Roberts poetry. You know, I just decided to read a bit about her. So I read Lyndall Gordon's biography of Lives Like Loaded Guns, which is just, I think, my favorite biography I've ever read. You know, there's so many things in that book that ended up becoming significant because she was writing about Emily Dickinson, for example, her obsession with flowers, which is very common for Victorians. They love flowers, not just gardening, but the symbolism of flowers. And that's really how that became part of the book. And then I bought books about Emily Dickinson's gardens and just loved that. There were so many interesting things about her life that kind of ended up connecting to this. For example, I was reading in the book, you know, that Emily, of course, never got married, neither did her sister. You know, in the book, it kind of discusses that for women at that time, you know, getting married and having children carried a great risk because you could die so easily in childbirth. And so a lot of women related, you know, marriage with death. <laughs> you know, I already had the idea for my book where this kind of light bulb went on and I was like, marriage could be, you know, for women of that time, literally 
a death sentence. And I really ran with that idea. So it was one of the kind of ideas that I took with me of how to play with that idea. And I really love that. So she gave me so many gifts, just like George O'Keefe, that just, I can't imagine the novel. You, You may not, you may read the novel and not notice Emily Dickinson, except for being quoted, but she was so important to just so many parts of the novel and really the foundation of it in so many ways. So I can't imagine what I would have done if I hadn't read that biography at that time and then started reading about her gardens and her poetry. It just changed everything. That's such a fun way to connect the dots because honestly, Belinda, I don't want to give her short shrift. She's Belinda. She's got stuff going on. And it's it's nice to know that she had a little bit of help. (laughs) (laughs) Saray Walker, thank you so much for joining us. The Cherry Robbers is out now. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of The Cherry Robbers. I'm Mark, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati. And with me is one of my favorite book buddies, Becky. Becky, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me back again. Absolutely. You're always a treat. So I've got a couple of books to go over. If you don't mind, I'm just going to dive right in. Sounds good. Fantastic. Since Cherry Robbers has kind of a spooky, gothic flavor, I wanted to recommend one of my favorites, and that is We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. Mm-hmm. This book just got under my skin in the best way. So here goes the setup. Six years back, the rich New England Blackwood family met with tragedy in the form of an arsenic-laced dinner, leaving only three survivors. Now crippled, Uncle Julian, daughter Constance, who cooked the fateful meal, and youngest Mary Catherine, our narrator. The three now live mostly reclusive lives under the hateful gaze of the town, ruled by routine and delicate conversation. But when an unexpected visitor arrives, the tenuous stability of the home and Mary Catherine's sanity is threatened. This book, to me, is about people skirting the truth of their past and what happens when that truth catches up. It's chilling and clever and is one of Jackson's very best. So please pick up We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. I like that one. Mm-hmm. You got one for us? I do. Um, so I, I'll be honest, I don't read a lot of, of that horror, scary stuff. I don't watch a lot of those kind of movies either. So, <laughs> And that's okay. <laughs> so this was a little bit of a stretch. But um, in coming up with books that were kind of in that spoopy, gothic vein, I definitely thought of like Rebecca or mm-hmm. Crimson Peak. Oh, yeah. I ended up yeah picking something that was a little newer in Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. Good choice. (laughs) This is a dark, juicy period thriller that will actually be coming to Hulu soon in a limited series, so I'm excited to watch that. Mm -hmm. It takes place in 1950s Mexico and follows Nomi, a headstrong and glamorous young woman who, after getting a disturbing letter from her newly married cousin, decides to travel to High Place, a house in the Mexican countryside. She goes in pretty much blind as she's only met her cousin's husband at the wedding, barely talked to him, and really knows next to nothing about his family. So when she arrives to High Place, she finds it lives up to its name in location only because it's this old, dilapidated Victorian gargoyle of a home that hardly has any electricity or modern conveniences. And it seems like a once grand mansion that's really just been left to rot. With her cousin Catalina, a shell of who she once was, Nomi is pretty much on her own in learning all about the Doyle family, 
that her cousin has married into. The family's once decadent wealth has faded since their mining empire came to an end, and the house that they live in is full of secrets of violence and madness that start to infect Nomi's dreams at night. Nomi is a smart, sassy, and outspoken protagonist that you'll definitely want to follow and cheer for as she goes deeper and deeper into this house of horrors. Mexican Gothic is a mix of Jane Eyre with Edgar Allan Poe's most disturbing short stories while working in discussions on sex, race, eugenics, and colonialism. This is a perfect summer horror read that you definitely have to add to your bag. Fantastic. (laughs) I love Silvia Moreno-Garcia and Mexican Gothic was the first book I read of hers and it is great and you're right perfect for summer good (laughs) choice i do have one more that i want to talk about and it is also a summer thriller that i highly highly recommend it's been out for a while and it's called the girls by emma klein Uh, you know i love this i do you know i've been pushing this book on people for years and years it draws a lot almost almost annoyingly so but never crosses that line it draws a lot from the manson madness of the late 60s but definitely stands on its own as a story of a woman coming to terms with her past so we follow 14 year old evie she is bored she is lonely she is adrift until a day at the park she sees the girls So I jotted down a line from the second page of the book because as soon as I read this line, I thought I will follow this author everywhere. So here we go. The familiarity of the day was disturbed by the path the girls cut across the regular world, sleek and thoughtless as sharks breaching the water. It gives me goosebumps. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. So Evie becomes folded into the lives of these girls as well as their charismatic, I mean, let's just call him what he is. He's a cult leader. And as readers predict the propulsive and terrifying direction that this group leads towards, Evie is swept along for the ride in many terrible ways. This book has more of a slow burn level of tension. It pops between Evie as an adult remembering what happened to her. But the main hub of the story is Evie going through this traumatic set of events. It just has really stuck with me for a long time. I think this writer is astounding and it is a summer thrill. So please check out The Girls by Emma Klein. Good choice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for listening to Poured Over. Please rate and subscribe so you never miss an ep and follow us at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my fantastic home store at BN Westchester or pop onto my Instagram at bookmark79. And I'm Becky. And you can follow me on Instagram at Becca Susie Q. All right, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. Happy reading. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.